the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, broken promises fish from the well of souls and used as light bulb filaments in hell. See, recycling works. Mass market Razorbacks prove a difficult format to read on airplanes. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This week we have for our Memorial Day podcast a conversation with Patrick Childs. Patrick is the author of Frontier, a hard science fiction near future novel of space adventure and rescue taking place in our solar system and in a manner totally consistent with science and engineering as we know it. It's fun nuts and bolts science fiction and still manages to create a sense of wonder. And Patrick Childs will tell us all about Frontier. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. Hey, it's the May Rubies and Rust Catherine Asaro ebook sale. To celebrate the mass market paperback publication of Catherine Asaro's The Vanished Seas, Bain eBooks has major discounts on all eBooks by Catherine Asaro. The Vanished Seas is the third book in Catherine Asaro's excellent science fiction and mystery series, featuring the tough Major Bajan, who hails from the deepest of planetary ghettos, but whose investigation into wrongdoings frequently shakes the highest levels of intergalactic empire. During May, get $2 off the ebook of The Vanished Seas and get $1 off all other Catherine Asaro ebooks, including The Bronze Skies, Undercity, these are parts of the Major Bajan series, plus dollar discounts on Sunrise Alley, Diamond Star, and Carnelians. These are available wherever Bain ebooks are distributed. Sale ends May 31st, 2021 at the crack of June. Hey, the June hardcovers and original trade paperbacks are at booksellers on Tuesday, June 1st. First up is Governor by David Weber and Richard Fox. Six billion dead, one man to stop the killing. The Terran Republic, the Terran League, genocidal enemies. Members of the 500 don't care. They are the social elite of the heart worlds, light years from any threat of attack. Rear Admiral Terrence Murphy is one of the 500. There is no end to how high he can rise in the Republic's power structure. But the powers that be have miscalculated. For Terrence Murphy is a man of honor. Terrence will end 56 years of bloodshed and slaughter, and hell itself rides in his wake. Also in June is Frontier by Patrick Childs. The future belongs to the strong of heart. Marshall Hunter only wanted to fly. The faster, the higher, the better, but Space Force had other plans for him. Interplanetary search and rescue. Now a billionaire couple goes missing on their way to survey a near-Earth asteroid. We'll find out lots more about this from Patrick momentarily in the interview. Finally out in June is We Shall Rise, edited by John Ringo and Gary Poole. Life after the Black Tide apocalypse. The world has been brought to its knees by the zombie virus. Nations have fallen, cities have been overrun by the infected, and the human race has come perilously close to extinction. But with the first winter come and gone, the infected have been reduced to a background nuisance and survivors around the world are taking stock and vowing to rebuild. All news stories set in the world of New York Times bestselling author John Ringo's Black Tide Rising series. We Shall Rise, edited by John Ringo and Gary Poole. Frontier by Patrick Childs and Governor by David Weber and Richard Fox are available June 1st at booksellers everywhere. Hey, want to welcome Patrick Childs to the podcast. Hey, Patrick, how's it going today? Going well, thank you. 
Patrick Childs has been fascinated by aircraft, rockets, and space flight ever since he was a child, transfixed by the Apollo missions. How he ended up an English major in college is still a mystery, although he managed to overcome this to pursue a career in aviation operations and safety management. He's a graduate of the Citadel. He's a graduate of the Citadel, a Marine Corps veteran and a private pilot. In addition to his novels, he has written for magazines such as Smithsonian's Air and Space. He currently resides in Tennessee with his wife and lethargic Dotsons. So, <laughs> and now out of booksellers everywhere, um, or very soon out of booksellers everywhere. We're going to use this as our big Memorial Day kickoff for Frontier by Patrick Childs. Um, wonderful hard science fiction uh, extravaganza. And when we say hard science fiction, this thing is, um, it's near future, it's about space flight, and it's everything you, you'd ever want in a, in a hard science fiction, um, nuts and bolts kind of good uh, adventure science fiction novel. So, uh, well, let's talk about it um, a bit. So why, uh, well, let's just talk about the, and before we start talking about the conception uh, of the book, let's talk about the, the setting. So we are in a near Earth, uh, a near future time frame around Earth. We have we have ships going out to visit. Um, we have an exploring ship that's going out to visit an asteroid, and uh, we but and we also have Space Force having developed. When you wrote this, Space Force was really in its infancy. Um, what, how do you envision it evolving and what is going to be the, what's the international situation as the book begins here? Sure, well, there's there's the way I think Space Force will probably actually evolve. And then there's a the way that I hope it evolves. And that's what I write about. Um, I, I think a lot of the things that, that find their way into my fiction are things that, that I really wish were happening. Things that I wish that I was doing myself and you know, so this is my way of, of, of making these things happen and putting myself in, the, in these uh, scenarios. So the way I envision Space Force in this book, and I don't want to pin down a time frame, but I would say we're roughly within a 20-year time frame, maybe it's what we're looking at here, um, is that it's not just uh, ground-based control and management of space-based assets, but there's some active um patrolling and interdiction and um kind of like the navy and the coast guard keeping the sea lanes open um and uh, you know part of my idea for that came from reading about this reading um um position papers and that sort of thing uh before space force even got started uh people calling for the need for like a uh, coast guard type presence in orbit as civilian space flight becomes more and more of a thing and uh, I could absolutely see a need for that for search and rescue. Um, it's eventually going to happen. You're eventually going to have a scenario like I wrote about in one of my first novels, a you know, civilian spacecraft that's stranded in orbit. Um, I think that kind of thing is almost inevitable as, as this becomes more commonplace. So, um, so that's where I saw this going. Um, the uh, bulk of the Space Force in Frontier is still ground-based management of space assets. You know, there's uh, some like X-37 drone operators, that kind of thing. Uh, so the only ship that they have in their in their new fleet is uh, um, the one depicted on the cover. I uh, uh, named it after Frank Borman. And so the Borman is it. The, um, and their role is kind of like a Coast Guard cutter. Um, they they are they're there for civilian search and rescue. They're there to protect U.S. assets in orbit, and um, because their area of operations is pretty wide ranging, anywhere between Earth orbit to lunar orbit, the whole cis lunar space, it's nuclear powered, and and then that's uh, for the purpose of the story. That's what enables them to go off on on this rescue mission. Yeah, that's that's really important, and it's mm -hmm. kind of your uh, MacGuffin. It's not your MacGuffin, but it's your driving sort of uh, power tool for the story. Uh, what does that mean to be a nuclear powered spacecraft? Uh, well, they have a lot more room to maneuver or ability to maneuver. Um, the, the, the increase in specific impulse and efficiency, you can, you can get uh, more thrust, more specific impulse, which is really, uh, um, 
in a sense, uh, better gas mileage. So you can use less propellant to get more energy and move the ship around. So, and, and really for, for something that would need to be able to change orbits frequently to get to wherever it's needed, it, it would have to be nuclear powered and there'd have to be an ability to refuel it in orbit as well. And so that's something else that I wrote in. You wrote talk about uh, some of the research you did at the back of the book. Um, so this is like, this is stuff that's, that's really been thought about uh, that, that you're writing about. Uh, is, was the Borman built in space or did it go up from? Oh yeah, no, the, the ship itself was built in orbit. There, there are components that go back and forth. Like there's a, you know, uh, a dream, if, if you're familiar with the dream chaser, uh, small shuttle that's being built right now, there's um, something similar to that, that, that services it and uh, gets crew members back and forth. And they use to get around to different points in orbit when they don't want to move the whole ship. Um, but, but other than that, yeah, the whole thing's a symbol in orbit and they can, mm. you know, they can add on, um, propellant tanks and that sort of thing but you know, everything's up there what? hold on just a moment forgot to turn my cell phone off <laughs> it's happened before um so uh what else is up there um as we begin there, there's a space station um where does the uh the the just uh, describe orbit, in other words. Okay. For us at this. Sure. And so the the, the uh, situation in, in Earth orbit in cis lunar space is there's more civilian activity. Um, so again, that's why this cruiser is up there. There are a number of, of remote sensing, uh, you know, spy satellites, communication satellites, that sort of thing in geosynchronous orbit, and they become part of um, they become part of the plot as well. There is um, a crew of civilian, basically uh, contractors up there in, in geosynchronous orbit. They're monkeying around with a few different selected satellites. Um, most of them don't know who they're actually working for. Um, they're not fully aware that they're up to something nefarious, but um, uh, the one guy that is aware of it is, is kind of managing the whole thing. And th this is a uh, this is one of the um, subplots of it. And so what they're doing is they're taking satellites that are out of service or close to being out of service and, and basically turning them, in, turning them into zombies. They're reanimating and they're refueling them, um, adding new components, new comm gear so they can control it. And they're using these things to um, basically go around geo orbit like viruses and take over, hijack other satellites that they need um, at will. And so that's happening in the background. And in the, in the foreground, we have the Borman. They're dealing with things like um, the search and rescue when it comes up. They're dealing with clearing out dead satellites, debris removal. Uh, my main character, Marshall Hunter, he's on the one hand, he's, he's thrilled to be working in orbit in space because you know who wouldn't be but at the same time he refers to it as garbage duty because a lot of what they're doing is is clearing debris um which it uh yeah. it doesn't sound like much but anybody who understands this stuff knows what an unbelievably big hazard that's going to be as we have more activity up there yeah not glamorous but necessary yeah. Well, all right. So let's talk about Marshall. Um, in fact, the book mm -hmm. does not start on the Borman. It starts down uh, on Earth and Marshall mm -hmm. is, um, is just passing or it's just doing his final flight check um, after he's gone to the, is it, you call it the Space Force Academy or what is it that he's just oh, he completed? Went, uh, I didn't specify which academy he went to because I hadn't decided for myself how this thing was going to work out for the time being. I'm assuming they're all going to go through the Air Force Academy, uh, kind of yeah. like uh, kind of like Marine officers go through the Naval Academy. I expect mm -hmm. it'll be that way for a long time. So he's actually at the end of flight school, and he's ready. He's getting ready to do his final check ride, and he gets an instructor pilot uh, that he hasn't run across before. He's unfamiliar with, and the guy is frankly busting his chops pretty hard. Uh, kind of puts him into a situation that is going to be really hard for him to get out of. 
and Marshall's angry because he busted his check ride and he feels like it's because this instructor set him up for it. And, um, you know, so his first assignment ends up being to a head, what he thinks is to a headquarters command and it's just going to be going nowhere, pushing paper. And so he's pretty, uh, he starts out pretty upset about that. And what is his, uh, what's his background with his dad and all that? That uh, Okay. He's so his back his background with his dad his dad is ryan hunter who was a major character in my first two uh, self-published novels who was um it was a pilot and flew a um, civilian suborbital spacecraft i had developed this whole kind of airline based point to point suborbital travel um uh industry uh for my first couple of books and so his dad was a big part of that who was also former uh, former military, got recommissioned, um, basically called out of retirement, recommissioned in, in one of my uh, in my second self-published book to deal with a, um, a hijacking of one of his company's uh, spacecraft. And because it turned out they thought it had disappeared, it was actually hijacked, and there was a lot more to the story than than just that. And so that's how the military got their clutches back on him. And he did a couple of audacious things in the books and had a little bit of a reputation for himself. And so, so Marshall is now grown up. He, uh, his dad taught him to fly when he was young around Colorado. And um, he's just trying to make a name for himself and he's wanting to get out from under his dad's shadow. And he, I mean, he's, he feels like maybe um, uh people may be expecting him to fail because his dad, nobody could be as successful as his dad. Is that the, the general gist of it? He's a little. He, I, I think he puts that on himself somewhat. And as um, he doesn't harbor any resentment or anything like that with his, with his dad. But, you know, the fact is, is he hears about him a lot. People point out, Oh, you're, you know, so-and-so's kid. Um, you know, you probably think you're a pretty hot stick too. And um Marshall is a, a pretty doggone good pilot on his own. And um, the people on the Borman see that and recognize it. And um, they eventually um, bring him onto the crew. And it's kept a little bit, a little bit on the down low because he's he's fresh. The, getting on the Borman is seen as kind of a career pinnacle assignment. But they also recognize that as they build more of these, they're going to need more and more people on them. So it means they're going to have to get more junior people. And so he's the first new guy they bring on board. So he's feeling that pressure too. He's they, not put him, uh, they put him in with the EVA. So yeah. That's the... Yeah. He, he goes up thinking, hot dog, I'm going to get to fly some really hot stuff. And uh, they actually make him in charge of the, uh, the EVA rescue crew and um, kind of a collateral duty that becomes his main duty. And he's not quite sure how to feel about that until he gets out on a few spacewalks with him. So I, I wanted to mirror some of the things that happen in the, the, the real military, um, how people can end up being assigned in, to things that they never expected mm -hmm. and end up doing things they never thought they would. And, and in the end, one of the things I really wanted to uh, illustrate is, especially among the, the officers, officer corps, at any time, no matter how junior you are, you could end up being the guy in charge. And, and um, I don't want to give away too much, but, but those are things that he's eventually going to have. Yeah. Well, it's a, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very fortuitous um, that, uh, that he is on AVA because we're going to have a rescue in this book. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny um, how that worked out. Before we get to that, uh, maybe we could talk about uh, Roberta as well. She's kind of, sure. she's a secondary character, but she's cool. And she has a major part to play in the book as well. She's, she's his buddy from, yeah, they're school they're days. in flight school together, and she's very um, she's very gung ho. You know, her attitude is there's no bad job in the space force. What it, the worst job in the space force is still better than anything in the navy or the army or, or any of the other branches, is how she looks at it. And she ends up um, she ends up being one of those uh, X thirty seven drone pilots, 
and uh, which is kind of of a surprise to her too. And um, so she she really embraces that and gets to do some cool stuff, learn some neat tricks that she gets to apply um, near the end of the book. But you know, she's one of those people that uh, is a little bit of a force of nature and is hard to restrain and likes to. Um, likes to take charge of things, maybe sometimes when she shouldn't. So, and what do those drones do? They're spacecraft and they do stuff up around the satellites, right? Yeah, they, um, and this, this is something that, that I wanted to play with a little bit because it, it's based on the, the real X-37s that the Air Force, I guess the Space Force now is, is uh, flying because these things go up. Nobody really knows what they're doing. They can, for people who aren't familiar with it, if you think of the space shuttle, it's a miniature unmanned version of that and it's been able to stay up for a long time i think uh, they've had them up for in orbit for as long as a year and a half doing who knows what there's all kind of talk that they're they're using them to um, get close-up views of other countries sat military satellites you know like the russians and the chinese um, there's talk that they've been they've been testing um, all kind of new techniques for servicing satellites, um, um, testing new um, electric thrusters, that kind of thing. Uh, space weaponry is maybe um, something they're testing. So in the book, there's a little bit of all that mixed in. A lot they're using for um, reconnaissance. Um, there's a few things with, with the thing being aerodynamic. There's some things I read about that they can use to uh, um, take advantage of being able to bite into the atmosphere a little bit to change trajectory and change their um, change their orbits that uh, people wouldn't expect, and it keeps the bad guys from finding them. And um, and anyway, they yeah they can be configured for a lot of different missions. So um, I wanted to use that to uh, to um, the good guys' advantage in the story and and have Roberta be able to. Uh, do a few things that uh, pull some people's fat out of the fire. So, um, what is all right? What is the number of that asteroid? Uh, RQ39. What's RQ39 and what the heck is the Stardust? I think it's 2023 RQ39. I, I mean, I looked into how they name asteroids and just pulled it out of a hat. <laughs> so, um, well, why would anyone want to go there? Yeah. Okay, so I'll try to make this as concise as I can. Okay, um, the reason they want to go there, number one, because you know the mountains there. Let's go climb it. Um, but the uh, the the couple that's going to explore it is are um, Chinese expatriates who uh, they live in the U.S. now. They've become pretty successful in mining and are kind of adventurous. They're um, human rights and religious freedom advocates. Um, and they just, uh, they're pretty notable for it. Uh, that's kind of rubbed the Chinese the wrong way. They don't like them very much. They can't touch them because they're here in the States. Well, they commission um, a spacecraft to go out on this flyby that I based it on the Inspiration Mars project from a few years ago. Um, and for people who aren't familiar with that, this was from the original space tourist, uh, Dennis Tito, who, if I understand it right, he was a trajectory analyst for the Viking missions back in the 70s. So he kind of knows what he's talking about. He figured out that around every 18 years or so, Earth and Mars are in position to where you could leave Earth um, with one burn on what they call free return orbit, which is how we did the Apollo to the moon, for example, where you could go send two people on a, a crude flyby of Mars and basically again with one burn and the whole thing would take about 15 to 18 months, uh, depending on when they went. And certain times like this year, there was a window they could have done a Mars and Venus flyby. Mm -hmm. And he made a big push to try to get funding to, to put together a spacecraft to do that using off the shelf components like inflatable hab modules, something like a dragon capsule to get people up there. And um, now I think they could put something like that together, but, but five or six years ago, it was just a little too ambitious. Um, 
but it's something I would love to see happen. To me, it seems very doable. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I based this on is something like that. And, um, but in the interest of keeping the story moving, um, I didn't want to slow down timelines very much. And so I thought if they had something like an asteroid flyby encounter on the way out, um, there's a lot that could really work well with that. The, uh, because there's a, there's a lot of thought that mining asteroids can be really lucrative. Um, there could be enough, and, and this is a pun, but rare earth minerals, and what would be more rare than <laughs> finding them on an yeah. asteroid. And there could, you know, the value point. could be, yeah. yeah, the value could be in the trillions. Yeah. Um, so it's so, uh, <coughs> they're not going to the asteroid per se, they're going to Mars. They're going to be, yeah, they're going to be in a flyby of Mars and the orbit is, um, um, for part of the journey outbound is um, congruent with this um, newly discovered asteroids orbit. So they're taking advantage of this. It, it, there's, you know, there's a lot of publicity drummed up, drummed up for funding. They're taking advantage of this to go out and um, spend some time exploring and prospecting this asteroid. And that's the name of their ship, Prospector, um, um, before they continue on to the Mars flyby. And so when they get to the uh, when they get to the asteroid is when things start to go sideways. Yeah. So um, you have a, a kind of fun bad guy um, in here. I mean, I, you get in his head, and and we sort of uh, have fun seeing things from his perspective, which is it's kind of a he's kind of a sociopath in a way. Mm -hmm. Nick, uh, tell yeah. us about him. So yeah, this is a. Uh... <laughs> Maybe I was watching Goodfellas one too many times on AMC or something. <laughs> That's kind of what I had in my head. I had somebody, I had him in my head as almost like kind of a mafia fixer type of guy. And um, um, made his bones uh, working, working casinos in Vegas. He got the attention of some international uh, um casino people like in Macau and and had worked for them for years as kind of a problem solver um well, you know a lot of shady under the table stuff and they tasked him with putting together this contractor mission to go up into geosynchronous orbit and and uh basically hijack a couple of of decommissioned satellites and and um basically you know turn them into zombie sats and go around and like I said like a virus and creating other zombie sets. So um, basically he's a force multiplier. He doesn't know who he's really working for and, and what their real motivations are. He just knows this is the job and they're, they're paying me for it and I'm gonna go do it. Yeah, he doesn't even, I mean, he doesn't particularly wanna be an astronaut. Um, he's no, he's not into the glamor of it at all. Yeah. Yeah. So, but... Um, those that are perhaps more enthusiastic have been encouraged not to get in his way. Yes. Some cool, uh, it's. Yeah, it's I, had, I, I had fun writing him. He was, he was definitely a, a different kind of character for me. He's murderous enough. Yeah, he's like, yeah, if don't get in his way. Because yeah. um, it's all about just getting the job done. So, I mean, I think that since it happens fairly soon in the book we could talk about that um a lot of the book involves that maxine and uh, jasmine mm -hmm. um and and marshall having to uh something happens um yes out there and um yeah yeah i don't i don't want to give away too much but yeah they they have some problems out there during their asteroid encounter and um their their ground support um back here on earth loses contact with them so space force uh sends the borman out to investigate in a mountain search and rescue and this is their first one beyond uh cis lunar space so it's you know technically an interplanetary rescue so everybody on the crew is really pumped about that uh, marshall doesn't think he's going to he's going to go being the new guy they're doing everything they can to strip down weight they're they're adding propellant um in orbit they're in a hurry to do that 
and uh, they're like you guys said, they're stripping down weight. They're leaving behind mission loadouts. They're leaving behind um, all but the most necessary crew. And again, Marshall's convinced he's uh, he's uh, not going to be able to to go. And um, I'm, I don't think I'm giving away too much by saying events transpire that that keep him on the crew for it. Yeah. Which isn't it's also fortuitous. He's because he's a big fan of what this uh, what um, uh, this couple, the James, are doing. Um, he's been following them on social media, looking, watching the news feeds about them every night. Because he he he's a um, very enthusiastic about exploration and what they're doing, and that somebody's finally going out there um, and uh, doing at least you know even as just a proof of concept. So to be on the crew that's going out to, to find them, he's, he's pretty thrilled. And you have one other player in this, as it were, because they have pissed off China. And I mean, it, it's even, I mean, today, I mean, like yeah. we saw some actor, uh, you know, apologizing for calling Taiwan a country uh, today, Yeah, you know? Um, so, they're they don't like being criticized they're they're uh it, it's still communist china right in in your world it is and very much so it, it is are. yeah and one of the things yeah and one of the things i wanted to do with this and i know it's not going to win me friends in some quarters um but i wanted to explore some of the adventurism we're seeing from china you know like in the pacific and the south china sea creating man-made islands that are you know military bases and and claiming rights to international waters that they don't really have and, and in general just throwing their weight around um so i i thought it would be fun to extrapolate that out into out into space out into orbit um and uh back to making claims on things they don't really have claims to. And uh, um, yeah, they're not big fans of the Jangs in the first place because they say things and point out things about China that, that make the uh, PRC uncomfortable. And um, yeah, they have, they have reason to want to see those two disappear. Mm -hmm. So we have all these things in motion uh, in the plot in, in much the way that planets are in motion and they're going to come together um, in Frontier. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So what is, um, what do you think your favorite technology you explored in the, in the novel is? Oh, probably, probably the nuclear propulsion. Um, just because that's something I really want to see happen. And like, it, you know, I, I don't want to beat the drum too hard because that's not what the book is about, but it's an important uh, enabling technology. Um, the, the kind of things that I, that I want to write about aren't really going to be possible um, uh, until we can, until we can uh, comfortably use nuclear power in space to, to move around. Um, we, we, you know, we really need that, that freedom of movement. And uh, so and the other technologies, EVAs play a big part in the story. And um, just that's where a lot of the action is. Um, it's happening outside the spacecraft. I didn't want people to just be stuck inside for the whole thing. I wanted, to, I wanted things to be happening outside. Um, and, um, and even though it's kind of simple technology, just uh, this prospector spacecraft that the James are on, um, that gets back to the inspiration Mars idea. That's something I would love to see happen. And, and I hope somebody can do it one day. I mean, who knows SpaceX is going to be landing 737 size rockets on Mars <laughs> in five years if, if, you know, if, uh, if Elon Musk has his way. So um, some of these things might be overtaken by real events in the future. So. <laughs> What is, um, what's it like to be on the surface of an asteroid? Because I, the way you described that really felt real to me. It was... Well, I, I, I did a lot of reading about that. You know, what, what kind of things they composed of, what, uh, what have we seen from the asteroids we've actually had encounters with? Um, you know, a lot of it is, is um, 
determined by how big it is, what's the mass, and therefore how much gravity is there. So is this actual? Is it actually a rock that um, that you can reach out and touch and not necessarily stand on? There's not barely enough gravity, um, or is it a loose um, agglomeration of gravel? Because um, there there's some that. Uh, the stuff is so loosely held that you could just about move it around. Um, um, gosh, I'm trying to describe it, it with the static uh, also that be almost like packing worms. <laughs> if you try to set foot on one of these things, you'd have uh, you'd have all this uh, charcoal looking rocks stuck to your feet and, and uh, your suit and just clinging from the from the static and just the, the loose gravity holding it down. So yeah, try to depict it as something that's almost barely holding itself together. And so you, you have to use things like pitons to, to uh, get footing on it. Um, any kind of spacecraft you'd want to land on it, you're not really landing on it, you're kind of attaching yourself to it, that kind of thing. So and and because they're not real big, you know, the horizon is pretty much seems like it's always going to be an arm's reach. I, the, I get the way I described it was kind of standing at the base of a mountain or a cliff and looking up and and that's all you see. And, and that's your entire world. Yeah, it's it, it'd be like being, yeah, I, I, it would frighten me because I would always be feeling like I was I was in in quicksand that at any moment could electrostatically pull me down or something like that. Yeah, that, that, that's one aspect, that aspect of it I tried to get across it. You just put a lot better than I could. And I think the other thing too is constantly feeling like you're about to fall off the world. Um, when, when you can just see the horizon and, it's, and it feels like it's in arm's reach, um, I think there'd be this constant feeling that one wrong step and you're twirling off into oblivion. Yeah. Well, the whole book is like this, uh, this, this, this feeling of what, I mean, it really feels like what it will be like when, it, when you are in space. Um, I think you really capture that well. Um, there must have been an enormous amount of research that you put into it. We've alluded to some of it. Um, what uh, do you sit around and read books about? I do. I'm a hopeless nerd. I really am. <laughs> um, I mean, this has been an obsession of mine since I was a, a little kid. It really has. So um, research for, for, for these books really is the kind of reading that I'd be doing anyway. Uh, I've read a lot of history on uh, space program, a lot of technical publications on on uh, design concepts and propulsion and that kind of thing. Um, I have to brag on my one of my sons a little bit. Uh, he just graduated as an aerospace engineer and um, he's going to work for one of the big um, space companies out in California. And I bounce a lot of ideas off of him. Um, you know, as, as he's progressed through college and he's learned more, um, you know, he's been able to uh, help me work through um, a few ideas. And, and also had access to information that, that I might not have had access to. Um, there, there are also some resources out there, um, especially one on the web I give a shout out to in just about every book and that's uh, Atomic Rockets. That's a terrific site. Any, any science fiction writer that's wanting to understand this stuff really needs to go there because it's, it's got everything you want in one roof or under one roof and it's, um, it's engaging and it's, um, all the math is there if you want it, but you can also breeze past it if you don't want it, but it'll, it'll help understand things. And that's where I've gotten a lot of these concepts from. There's nothing in here that I've made up out of whole cloth. Everything is, everything is based on, on, on technology that's feasible and in some cases actually being developed. Yeah. Well, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of writers can read the, uh, can read all the specs and the uh, and do the research, but still not come up with a compelling story as as you can. Yeah. Um, it seems like maybe Marshall might be based a little bit on some of your own um, coming of age, um, or or you were in the military at that mm -hmm. young age, right? <laughs> yes, something you drew. From yeah, there's definitely some of that. Um, like I said, the kind of some of the frustrations you have of 
not ending up where you thought you were going to end up or wanted to end up, but you're there anyway, and you have to, you have to make the best of it. Um, yeah, there was definitely some of that. Um, and, um, I think, I don't think there's any way of avoiding putting some of yourself in, in most of your characters. So, um, you know, there's things I've seen in, in, in our sons that I've put into them also. And yeah, you're, um, you have a, a dad's eye view now of, of somebody coming <laughs> yep. in the, that, that late teens, early twenties moment where you figure out what the heck you're going to be as Marshall is doing and Roberta also. Well, so. well, it helps that I'm in my fifties now and I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow yeah, up. Yeah. We don't always figure it out, do we? <laughs> yeah. The, but we try, you know, mm -hmm. it gets closer. Yeah. So, uh, what are you, what are you working on now? Um, so working on a sequel to Frozen Orbit and um, it took a while to finally settle on the, the, the story in my head, what, how I wanted this to unfold and along with uh, some of the other, the uh, underlying um, subplots that are going to be going on with it. And so that's what I'm doing now. I've started, I've started writing on it. I've got the, uh, I've got the uh, story and character outlines done and um, working on it, uh, uh, picking away at it every day right now. Very cool. Well, the book that is um, <clears throat> momentarily going to be out next uh, next Tuesday and uh, is out in uh, ebook form right now is Frontier by Patrick Childs. And uh, this is just great. See your pants uh, put you right there. Um, near future science fiction, sense of awe, um, sense of wonder, hard uh, uh, nuts and bolts stuff, everything you want in a great science fiction novel. Um, it just, uh, just, just really fun. It was fun to edit as well. So, um, thanks. It was fun to write, and it was, uh, um, it was one of those I wasn't quite sure about it um, when I turned it into you guys, and when I got the uh, the edit notes back a few months later, um, you know, I was gratified to see everybody there seemed to really like it uh which you know that's always good <laughs> but reading back through it um for uh, a third time or so after uh after you guys had had work on it i was reading through it and going oh yeah this isn't bad <laughs> i like this this is a pretty good book it ain't bad it's fun and if you love this yeah. kind of science fiction this is the this is a archetypical uh, sort of version of that well yeah, patrick that's... thank you so much for talking with us about frontier thank you for having me it's great to do it's um i said I, I i write this stuff because uh I'm, I'm looking for the books that nobody else is writing so if i can't find it i'm going to do it myself very good there is another entry in david weber's honor harrington series masterpiece uncompromising honor honor keeps her promise the salarian league for hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization, but the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has won the star kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. Central Command Center, Admiralty Building, City of Old Chicago, Old Earth, Sol System. What do you make of all this, sir? Willis Jennings spoke softly, pitching his voice too low to be overheard even in the Central Command Center, buried 80 floors beneath the Admiralty Building. CCC was dimly lit as always, and had the hush associated in Jennings' experience only with churches and military command centers in the midst of crisis. 
If you'd asked me that three days ago, I might not have been as worried as I am now, Winston Kingsford responded equally softly to his chief of staff's question. I might have been surprised even after Fabius, given how hard they've tried to convince everyone we're the aggressors, and I probably would have figured they intended to trash Ganymede as a reprisal for what we tried to do to Evaldi. Of course, one reason I would have been surprised if they'd tried anything more ambitious is that I would have believed that bastard Gwion's estimate on how short of ammunition they were. Jennings grunted. Kingsford and Gaddis had come up with a crude but simple technique for testing loyalties. The CNO had called Jennings in, and Gaddis and Okiku had arrested him, exactly as they'd arrested Gwion. Instead of dropping dead, Jennings had been coldly furious at having been accused of treason, at which point Kingsford had explained what was actually happening. He'd made no effort to hide how glad he'd been to confirm his chief of staff's loyalty, not simply to the League, but to him, and they'd set out to clear as many other senior officers as they could. Finding excuses to get them into Kingsford's office, or somewhere else where they could be arrested without any witnesses, wasn't easy, and they'd just about run out of pretexts. But at least they'd managed to test 26 of them so far, and five of them had reacted exactly the way Guion had. That was a frightening percentage, but as Colonel Okiku had pointed out, they were beginning with officers in the positions which would have been most valuable to the other guys. Under the circumstances, it was only to be expected that the other side would have concentrated its efforts on putting its own people into them, which undoubtedly explained why the percentage had been so high. Kingsford didn't want to think about how the other guys would react when they noticed their people inside the Admiralty's upper echelons were disappearing, and if he was honest, he'd also been more than a little shaken by how efficiently Gaddis and Lieutenant Colonel Wing had made the bodies in question do that disappearing. It made him wonder where and why they'd learned to conceal corpses so proficiently. Not even they could keep someone on the other side from noticing the sudden, unprecedented rate of absenteeism eventually, however. They could, however, hope that each of the recently deceased had been assigned to his or her own unique controller as a security measure. That was the way Kingsford would have done it anyway, especially for moles in such critical positions, assuming he'd had enough controls to make it work. And if they had, that might mean no one on the other side was in a position to realize how many of their agents had just gone missing. Each control would realize his mole had gone dark. He just wouldn't realize so many others had done the same thing, which would mean they probably had more time in hand than he was afraid they did. Relying on that could have unfortunate consequences, however. Still, if Wang Jinghuan and Lupe Blanton were correct, they should have at least a brief bubble before the other guys could change strategies in response, even if they'd already noticed their vanishing moles. As Blanton had pointed out, decision-making and communication loops were the Achilles' heels of any interstellar conspiracy. So logically, it should take the other side's leadership quite some time, presumably several weeks at least, to find out they'd lost track of Guion and his fellows and do something about it. Unfortunately, Kingsford rather thought Gaddis and Dowd Alphanadahi had made a lot of sense when they'd pointed out in reply that whoever the other guys were, they'd been running their interstellar conspiracy for a long time. It was entirely possible they'd learned from experience that successful dinosaurs needed secondary brains at frequent intervals and built-in contingency plans at the local level. Whether or not those plans had ever visualized the possibility of having their network rolled up from the top down was another question. No doubt it would have been an entertaining one to debate over a good bottle of whiskey had it been a purely theoretical possibility. Under the circumstances, he'd been anything but entertained by the possibility. And now, this. If Alphanudahi and Teague's worst-case scenario for what happened in Beowulf after we left applies, though, he continued, I don't think they're likely to settle for hitting Ganymede. Maybe not, sir, but Ganymede's not exactly naked, you know. And if they want more than Ganymede, they'll have to come inside the limit. When they do, their options decrease. They won't be able to hyper out of harm's way, and we've got a hell of a lot more cataphracts covering the inner system than Heckel has out at NSG. Do they really have to come inside? Kingsford asked softly. Jennings raised his eyebrows, and the CNO snorted. Capriotti didn't need to cross the limit in Fabius, he pointed out. He only did it to divert their attention from the Ostas. 
and everything we've seen suggests their fire control is even better than Asta's. Not as stealthy, no, but considerably more capable when it comes to actually hitting things. So what if they're perfectly prepared to sit outside the limit and just blaze away at the inner system? Sir, there are over a billion people spread between the inner system habitats, Jennings protested. And how many million were spread between the Beowulf habitats? Kingsford shook his head. I think we'd better all pray they're more concerned about avoiding collateral deaths than we were. Central Command, NSG Able One. Naval Station Ganymede, Sol System, Solarian League. Missile activation, Lieutenant McGill sang out, shattering the intense silence. Enemy missiles have reactivated. Range 36.75 million kilometers. Time to attack range, 180 seconds. Right on schedule, Heckel thought grimly. So at least O and I did finally get something right. Not that it's going to do us any good. He checked the seals on his skin suit with his right hand as he stood beside Padaloshti, helmet tucked in the crook of his left elbow. Part of him was tempted to go ahead and helmet up, but that wasn't the sort of example an admiral was supposed to set. Besides, there wasn't much point to it. While the big compartment was buried deep at the heart of NSG Able One, Ganymede Station's main platform, that was unlikely to be sufficient protection against laser heads as powerful as the Mantis and their friends threw around. Putting on his helmet wouldn't help a lot if Central Command took a direct hit of that magnitude. In the event that they took damage, but were fortunate enough not to be hit directly, and despite its size, Central Command was a relatively small target compared to the rest of the platform, there ought to be time to don his helmet before it depressurized completely. It was amazing how long three minutes could be, he thought, watching the plot's icons streak towards them. He felt himself tightening internally, his stomach clenching, his leg muscles trying to quiver with the ancient fight-or-flight reaction. But neither fight nor flight was an option, so he simply stood there, waiting. Counter-missiles began to launch, and Naval Station Ganymede was no mere task force or even a fleet. It had always been liberally provided with counter-missile launchers, and their numbers had been vastly increased as the SLN began, dimly, to recognize the nature of the threat it faced. Every one of the hundreds of warships in Ganymede orbit vomited counterfire as well, and literally thousands of counter-missiles streaked to meet the Mark 23s. But this was an old game for the Grand Alliance, and no other navy in the galaxy could match their missile crew's expertise. Dazzlers flared all along that wavefront of missiles, and dragon's teeth sprang to life, filling space with false targets while the real threats bored in behind the Dazzlers. There were 2,700 missiles in Grand Fleet's launch, Honor could have fired many times that many, but she had elected to use only 300 of her Mark 17 flat pack pods. She was, after all, making a point. 300 of those missiles were Mark 23Es, following behind their more lethal brethren with no warheads of their own. Of the other 2,400, Andrea Jarowalski had dedicated a full quarter as EW and Pen-8 platforms, so there were a total of only 1,800 actual ship killers in that tide of death. Naval Station Ganymede fired well over 200,000 countermissiles at them, backed by more than 4,000 point defense clusters, most far larger than any mobile structure mounted. They were more powerful, there were more of them, and their software had been continuously tweaked since the Battle of New Tuscany. And they still weren't good enough. The defenders killed 811 Mark 23s, but 260 of them were penetration platforms. In the end, 1,249 of the most powerful laser heads ever deployed punched straight through the very best the Solarian League Navy could throw at them. They drove in on their targets, and then in one perfectly synchronized instant, they detonated. HMS Imperator, Sol System. Ghost Rider confirms detonation, Andrea Jarowalski announced. It looks good overall, Your Grace but it'll be a few minutes before the detailed evaluation comes in. Good, Honor said. Time to attack for their birds? Nineteen minutes, Your Grace. Rafe? Honor looked at the bulkhead screen tied into Imperator's command deck. Set the translation clock for seventeen and a half minutes from now. Yes, ma'am.
Central Command, NSG Able One, Naval Station Ganymede, Sol System, Solarian League. He was still alive. That was Meridor's Heckel's first incredulous thought. He was alive. He felt himself inhale, heard the same sounds of surprise sweeping through the rest of Central Command, and turned disbelievingly to his chief of staff. Padaloshti was still staring at the plot, trying to understand why they were alive, and Heckel gave himself a shake. Status, he heard someone else say using his voice. We're, Captain Sukitani began, then stopped. He bent over his own terminal, tapping keys, then straightened and turned to face Heckel. Admiral, he said very carefully. The main platforms didn't take a single hit. We lost two destroyers and a heavy cruiser, but I think that was a mistake in their targeting. A mistake? Padaloshti repeated. Yes, sir, a mistake. They didn't hit any of our other active ships, and with all those battle cruisers and super dreadnoughts in orbit, I don't see how they could have missed them all unless they'd tried really hard. But in that case, what? It looks like they took out at least 90% of the super dreadnoughts in Reserve One. The Reserve? This time it was Heckel, and Sukitani nodded. They have to have done it on purpose, sir. Not only that, they punched their birds right through our defensive envelope to reach them, and they didn't have to do that. They brought them into range of our CMs and every one of our platform's point defense clusters, and with their laserhead standoff range against targets without even sidewalls, they could have stayed entirely out of our counter-missile envelope. Far less laser range if they'd wanted to. A message, Heckel said softly. They were sending a message. His brain raced. He hadn't even thought about the thousands of obsolescent super dreadnoughts parked in the 24, equidistantly spaced clusters riding Jupiter orbit with Ganymede. Why should he have? If the Mandis had proved one thing, it was that those pre-pod fossils were death traps waiting to happen. They knew that even better than the SLN. So why in God's name should they have even considered wasting missile fire on ships which were already inevitably destined for the breakers? Because it lets them prove that they could have killed all of our active ships just as easily. The realization went through him like a dagger of ice. It was a demonstration of just how defenseless we are, and proof that they can snuff out NSG anytime they damned well feel like it. He stood there staring at Tsukitani, then sucked in a sudden breath. Abort the attack, he snapped. Tsukitani blinked, then darted a look at the tactical board. We can't, sir, he said. We're 17 and a half minutes from attack range. Heckle swallowed hard. It would have taken 19 minutes for the self-destruct command to catch up with the cataphracts. And that meant the Mantis were going to think he'd missed their message. He turned sickly back to the plot watching the icons. HMS Imperator, Sol System. 100 seconds to attack range, Your Grace. Captain Jarawalski seemed remarkably calm about it. Translation in 75 seconds, Rafe Cardonis announced from his command deck, and Honor reached up to caress Nimitz's ears. Central Command, NSG Able One, Naval Station Ganymede, Sol System, Solarian League. Sir, the Mantis have translated out, Tsukitani said sharply, and Heckel felt himself sag around his bones. He supposed a true naval officer shouldn't feel such profound relief when his enemies escaped unscathed, particularly when they did it so tauntingly, waiting until the last minute to disappear into hyper. It was the equivalent of thumbing their noses in his face, yet he'd never been happier to see something in his entire life. Let's get a transmission off to Admiral Kingsford, he said. Append our detailed sensor records. Yes, sir. Heckel nodded, then crossed to the command chair he'd ignored for the last couple of hours. Padaloshti followed him, and he racked his helmet on the side of the chair and leaned back with a sigh. I'd just as soon not do that again, sir, Padaloshti said quietly, standing beside him, and Heckel chuckled harshly. It beats hell out of what we might have been doing instead, he pointed out. What do you think their next move is, sir? I suppose that depends on where they jumped to, Heckel said. 
If they did what I think they did, it won't be long. He smiled thinly and sat back, legs crossed, and waited. Hyperfootprint, Lieutenant McGill said sharply. Many hyperfootprints range approximately seven light minutes. Alarm sounded quite unnecessarily after McGill's announcement, and Heckle straightened in his chair. A little closer than I'd expected, really, he said as he watched the last of the invaders come over the alpha wall and back into phase with the rest of reality almost exactly 22 and a half minutes after they'd left it. It was a dazzling display of astrogation, he thought. A perfectly aligned micro jump, barely 17 light minutes long, that left the attackers still almost three light minutes outside Jupiter's hyperlimit. Of course, it would take 15 or 16 minutes for their Waller's generators to cycle and allow them to translate out again, and that meant, in theory, that the cataphract still in his warship's magazines could have reached them well before they could escape again, except that he was reasonably confident escape was the last thing on their mind. The icons on the plot changed abruptly as every one of those ships strobed its transponder and his mouth tightened at the fresh, no doubt intentional display of contempt for the best the SLN could do. Those transponders would have been homing beacons for any missile he decided to fire at them, but they obviously didn't care. In fact, it was more than simply not caring. They wanted him to know exactly what they'd brought to the dance, and something with thousands of tiny feet crawled up and down his spine as the hundreds of transponder codes identifying super dreadnoughts of at least four different star nations spangled the plot. Sir, we have a calm request, Captain Volodymyrov said carefully. It uh, seems to be coming from a relay less than 10,000 clicks out. Put it on my display. Yes, sir. Volodymyrov nodded to one of his techs. A moment later, Heckle's calm display came alive with the face of a dark-haired woman in the skin suit of a Royal Manticoran Navy Admiral. He'd never met her, but he would have recognized her from the intelligence file's imagery, even without the cream and gray creature glaring into the calm from the back of her command chair. Good afternoon, Admiral Harrington, he said. You recognize me, she replied less than seven seconds later, despite the vast gulf which still lay between them. Good, that will save some time. She had not, he noticed, asked who he was. He wondered if that meant she already knew or that she simply didn't care. Listen to me carefully, she continued in a voice which could have been carved from Ganymede's ice. Because I'm only going to say this once. I am prepared to allow you and your personnel to surrender to the Grand Alliance upon the following terms. First, you will immediately evacuate all personnel from all active warships and scuttle them. There will be no exceptions. You may transfer as many of those personnel as you desire and have the capacity for to the transports and support vessels also in Jupiter orbit. And I will permit any such vessels to depart unhindered for the inner system at such time as the last of your warships has been destroyed. Second, you will stand ready to be boarded by my Marines and be aware that any resistance of any type to any of my personnel will be met immediately by the use of lethal force. Under the circumstances, the lives and safety of my personnel are my sole concern. Preserving the lives of people stupid enough to threaten those lives and that safety isn't even on my to-do list. Be certain all of your people understand that, because no warnings will be given. Heckle's blood ran cold as he suddenly recognized the ferocious hunger in that icy soprano. He didn't know where it had come from and it was wildly at odds with the mental picture of her he'd built reading between the lines of media reports and O&I's analyses. But she'd meant it, he thought. Her Marines would shoot without warning. Third, your personnel will cooperate in transferring control of your platform's power, environmental, and engineering systems to my engineering personnel, she continued. Fourth, you will surrender to my control, intact and undamaged, every computer and computer file in your possession. And fifth, your system's development command and Technodyne Industries will surrender every prototype and every system under development undamaged with complete documentation. He swallowed hard. If he gave her what she was demanding, the Mantis and their allies would know everything there was to know about the Solarian League Navy, everything from secure communications protocols to the very latest R&D. The consequences of that would be, you don't have to meet my conditions, 
she told him. That decision is up to you. But be advised that if you have not accepted my terms within the next 10 minutes, I will open fire upon you and no further offer of surrender will be accepted. The blood ran from his face. She couldn't mean that. She was talking about a massacre. And be further advised, she told him very, very softly, that if you accept my terms and then violate them in any way whatsoever, I will withdraw my personnel from your platforms and destroy every single one of them. The creature on her shoulder bared needle-sharp fangs at him, but somehow her smile was far more terrifying. I will await your decision for 10 minutes, she said, and his calm display went blank. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com and thanks to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the slushy remains of a Zippy Mart asteroid smoothie, along with the remains of a Milky Way bar with one bite taken out, and an entire spliff of Scooby Snacks. Plus, thanks, praise, and gratitude for Patrick Childs, author of Frontier. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. Oh, 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 o